and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Sarah Kachansky. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the gig economy and how the market has been largely underserved by traditional finance. But before we start, we just want to tell you about some of the things we're working on here at 11FS and a quick word from our sponsors. Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest performing banks with cost-income ratios which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at temenos.com. We've got some exciting news for you. Blockchain Insider, our bi-weekly podcast dedicated to all things crypto, is coming back. Join me, Simon Taylor, and my new co-host, Visa's head of crypto, Kai Sheffield, when the first episode drops on Wednesday, the 14th of July. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts and don't miss it. Okay, let's get started. So the gig economy is en route to generating $455 billion globally by 2023. And in 2020, gig workers represented around 35% of the US workforce. There currently is no universal definition of a gig worker, but one common explanation is that gig workers are independent contractors or freelancers who typically do short-term work for multiple clients. Gig workers typically earn erratic wages, which can make it hard for them to access certain mainstream financial services products and services. And in today's show, we're going to discuss how and why banks should focus on catering to this growing industry and its workers. To dig into this, I'm joined by some fantastic guests. So making a welcome return to Fintech Insider, we have Artif Siddiqui, founder and CEO at Branch. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Great to have you with us. Can you uh, just remind the listeners uh, in a nutshell what Branch is and what it does? Thanks, Sarah. It's great to be back. Um, yeah, Branch, we provide financial services that helps businesses accelerate payments to empower their workers. You know, we really focus on working Americans that typically work in an hourly or gig job that have yeah, traditionally been underserved by traditional financial services. And we've been able to do this really by building our own real-time payments tech that provides a digital wallet to push out funds faster to workers. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We also have making her FinTech Insider debut, Una Rokita, co-founder and CEO at Lance. Thank you for joining us, Una. Can you give us a super quick summary of Lance, please? Thanks so much for having me on the show today. Uh, Really excited to be here. And in terms of Lance, we provide a unique kind of solution. We really found that traditional banking products and accounting services were not serving gig workers or freelancers really effectively in terms of really setting them up successfully with a financial structure through which they could process all of their income from different types of flexible work and really optimize uh, what they were making. So that's what we do in one simple business banking account today. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And last, but by no means least, also making a welcome return to Fintech Insider, we have Craig Lewis, founder and CEO at GigWage. Uh, Welcome to the show, Craig. Can you give us an overview of GigWage before we start, please? Yeah, thanks for having me on. So yeah, GigWage, we are, you know, in its simplest form, a payroll company for the gig economy. Um, We view a lot of the issues that you discussed in your intro um, that happen with gig workers as a workforce management problem. 
And so we're hyper-focused on helping the, we call it the 10 and the 10,000, right? The 10 people responsible for getting the 10,000 people paid. So we've built payroll, payments, and banking technology tools for your payroll department, your accounting department, your HR department to help these gig workers get paid when they want to get paid, how they want to get paid, and where they want to get paid. And so we're solely focused on gig workers, independent contractors, freelancers. We don't do any W-2 stuff. Um, and we we think that focus has allowed us to, to, to really help a lot of people. Brilliant. Well, um, you were all experts in this area, so I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Let's get started. Okay, let's start this conversation by looking at how the gig economy has been underserved or on some occasions not served at all by traditional financial companies. So, I mean, why why is it so difficult? Why are gig workers in particular such a difficult market to serve? Or given all of your three areas of expertise, do you think that's the wrong question and think actually they're not difficult to serve at all? People just haven't, you know, thought about the problem correctly. I don't know who wants to who wants to go first. Una, you're smiling at me, so it sounds like you have a response to that question. <laughs> uh, well, I think we've all spent a lot of time thinking about this this challenge, and it is a challenge today, just from our perspective, because you know the the structure around how work is categorized and paid and documented or accounted for is really not suited to more flexible work today. Right. And we've gotten into kind of a default setting around nine to five work and one source of income over the last several decades, which frankly has never really been accurate for some portion of the population that's always been flexible, always been consulting, contracting, you know, even bartering their services. But increasingly over the last decade, maybe two decades at most, you know, there's been an increase in tension in terms of how those income sources can be documented as a whole for different purposes, whether it's people just knowing how much they made or for lending purposes, which I'm sure we'll get into. And then what we really saw in the last year with the pandemic was as the U.S. um, looked to aid freelancers and flexible workers increasingly in other countries as well, you saw a real challenge for tracking down what people made in previous years. And I think that just made a put a finer point on this challenge. So I think that all of us are looking to support flexible workers more. There are different segments of that population as well that we're each, I think, looking to support. And to piggyback off of Una's comment, I mean, yeah, it, it gig work really encompasses many types of industries and workers, industries that are some still fairly new, emerging and growing. You know, from our take, really Gig work entails a lot of fluidity and flexibility. And what we've seen is that most financial services haven't quite caught up to that yet. So if you look at the current sort of payment processes for you know, financial services, we find it's maybe too slow or too cumbersome. It doesn't fit the schedule or demands really of a flexible-minded workforce. And I think, you know, providing consumers, uh, these workers, more options around that flexibility, not just in their schedules, but also in their pay is one that, you know, really resonates with them. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Craig, did you want to jump in there on on this sort of this sort of opinion, or perhaps an opinion held in certain places, particularly large financial institutions, that that gig workers' financial needs are are really unusual, and that makes them niche, and they're they're just you know we're not going to bother with that niche because it's you know it's it's, it's very specific, and and there aren't enough people to to cater to. Yeah, I was at a roundtable with a bunch of Fortune five hundred like HR VPs, and and someone actually used the term redheaded stepchild to describe gig workers, right? They're just ignored, mistreated, right? 
I don't know if my our global listeners all if that resonates, but that's an old story. But anyways, they're they're often ignored. But it's it's more than just financial institutions. We think the problem is really systemic. There is no infrastructure from top to bottom in the gig economy stack. So the government laws, policies, nothing is aligned. Everything is built around traditional work, W uh, two employees, if you will, in the U S. You know the you know academia doesn't really teach you what it's like to go out and get a job as a gig worker or a freelancer or non traditional worker. Financial institutions are tied to traditional work, right? And how long have you been employed? And what do you make every two weeks? And so it's really a systemic issue that lacks infrastructure, and it really uh, again needs a comprehensive approach. Uh, and I think what's highlighted that over the last ten years has really been. You know a number of things, but I think when I really drill down into it, you know the the acceleration of mobile technology, right? The ability to push a button and do work, then requires you to be able to you know expect to push a button and get paid, right? And so, uh, you know, prior to the last ten or so years, that hasn't been as glaring, and now it is. And so you've got this systemic problem that needs a complete overhaul, but can't move at the speed that technology is moving at. And so companies like the ones that we have on this podcast today are all doing our part to to help change that. But it's a massive, massive problem for sure. I mean, talking about systemic issues, is there something underlying perhaps the demographics that tend to make up gig workers? I mean, I know in the last 12, 18 months, we've seen a huge swathe of people come into this this industry, to the, the gig working industry. But, you know, underlying that perhaps more historically, there have been people who have taken up this kind of work because they're recent migrants, because, you know, they, they, they've they newly arrived in a country. And then, you know, is there something off the back of that about the fact that they don't have a permanent address, they're newly here, they haven't got a credit history exacerbated by the fact that they can't there's I, th- I think there's perhaps something maybe cyclical in there that you can't then get a job which means you go into gig working which means you haven't got a salary <laughs> which means you, you you go round and round in circles is that something you've seen you know within your companies uh, is the makeup perhaps that the, the makeup of your customers there's some is there they, do they come from more interesting backgrounds that mean perhaps they don't have some of those traditional things in place that you would do if you had a credit card since you were 18 and lived in the same country for 40 years for example I think I'll, if I can take a stab at that first, I think that's the part that everyone focuses on. And it's a big part of the gig economy and a growing concern around the gig economy. But I've also, I think the gig economy is the economy. It's very horizontal. Um, at this point, you're talking about about 50% of the workforce. And so not only is it the low to middle income earners, but you've got you know six and seven figure earners that do this type of alternative work. And so Every single industry is impacted by it, but I think the glaring issues are always those that are ignored, underrepresented, right? And so depending on, you have to take it from industry to industry. We see a lot of work in the transportation industry. We see a lot in real estate. We see a lot in insurance. Uh, But across those three sectors, you know, you've got low to middle income earners all the way up to really, really high earners, right? And so this kind of concept that the gig economy is all down market, low to middle income earners I think it's part of the problem. We have to realize that, you know, depending on the statistics, you're talking about 57 to 75 million people, which is about half of the U.S. workforce, talking about four and a half trillion dollars globally paid out. This is a an economic thing that affects all classes, all races, all types of people. And again, I think it's just really a systemic infrastructure issue and people need to reimagine how we think about work. Um, but those, you know, underbanked and underserved, low in, low to middle income earners are also a very big part of that equation. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I completely agree with you. I think you see, particularly, it's become, as I say, more apparent over the you know over the course of the pandemic that the people who are doing gig work, you know, each gig they do is paying them ten thousand dollars a pop because you know because of because of the work they're doing because of the, the, the changing working patterns we've seen. So I completely agree that you know those people are are still going to suffer some of the issues perhaps around inconsistent income patterns, you know, not having an employer benefits, you know, different tax requirements. I don't know, Una or, or Artif, perhaps, you know, what is what is the biggest issue do you think that you know that each of you're each doing different things but what is the biggest hurdle do you think when it comes to serving those in the gig economy across the board so if you take out of the fact that you know it might okay let's assume that only a few of them suffer from those problems where they're recent migrants etc and actually the rest of them are, are just people who have chosen a different way of working what's the next biggest difficulty or hurdle to serving them for us, we've really focused around that, you know, the inconsistent income patterns, um, you know, with income being highly volatile, makes it very hard to kind of smooth out cash flow for, you know, expenses throughout the month. And so where we look at it and approach it is really on the access of pay. Um, you know, speed of payments is a major pain point. We um, recently actually did a survey with Marketa. And to fi- figure out like what is the value of instant payments to the you know contractor and gig workforce, and we found that seventy percent of them prefer to receive their pay within the same day they work, which you know wasn't surprising. Something we see on the W two side as well, and you know for us it's like how do we help them access their pay, create a kind of to Craig's point too a more uniform solution for companies too to kind of standardize their process around worker pay. I mean, Una, how about you? Yeah, I was gonna. I was just gonna add to that. I think to layer onto what Atifo was saying, there's kind of this monolithic approach to gig workers, and I think it's useful to just take a step back and, and just think about, you know, at least from our perspective, we look at income levels as well, right? And, and to your point, Sarah. You know, there's people at kind of the lower end of that spectrum that are making under, you know, poverty poverty line or under middle class income. And then there's certainly professionals that have retainer clients where they're charging them ten, twenty thousand dollars per project or on a monthly basis, highly diversified in their income. And then there's a middle segment that's making enough and making a, a solid middle class income. And they're really struggling, I think, the most in terms of infrastructure that's lacking. And I think the focus tends to be on the gig work where people aren't making enough money or are really challenged with their marketplace income streams and everything. And I think that's useful or instructive to think about, you know, those that are really looking to get paid out immediately and those that are comfortable with a 10-day lag because they have more retainer clients or different skill sets to apply. And those that are highly skilled and have just converted into consulting or later on in their careers. And I think all of those are really instrumental in looking at kind of the different solution sets that are required, both on the client side and the freelancer side. And I think that's really what adds an additional layer of challenge to kind of looking at this space and looking for the best tools to apply, but really creates a lot of opportunity. I mean, you're talking to three very different companies that are focused on different angles and vectors of application. And, you know, speaking for Lance, we're really focused on that middle income segment where people are comfortable with what they're making. They just have never gotten the direction from an HR or a finance AP team to 
tell them or even automate where all of their income should be going as a holistic compensation, right? And then we do that for them. We step into that zone for them and just make it just as comfortable as walking into a nine to five to just start allocating that. And I think each of us, as we look at the companies in the space, have to apply that lens of who is it really supporting and and what's the end goal. And of course, when you're looking at 50% of the workforce, there are going to be disparate needs across individuals, income levels, and industries. Do you think perhaps that then is the problem with traditional finance companies who, so some of them have sort of, I would say, um, some of them are further ahead than others and that they're not completely blind. They do think that perhaps they should be starting to do something in this space, given it makes up such a huge percentage of, of you know, workers. But do you think do you think it's possible to serve a broader set of needs? Is it possible to say we serve the entire gig economy doing all of their financial services? Or do you think because it's so big, because it's so desperate, exactly to your point, that creates so many opportunities, actually there's a lot, it's not never going to be possible for one company to do it all? I think it's the latter because there are such different needs in terms of how you get paid, the frequency of payment between, say, a dog walker or you know a high-end designer for Apple, right? <laughs> there's just always inherently going to be that difference. And that difference on the back end of need, how you apply those funds um, and what you're looking to do with them. And, and so it's it's a challenge, but it's most definitely an opportunity. And I think to really reimagine the products and the tools that we're using today. And I think that's where banking really hasn't caught up is it, it's easier to continue applying the same products over and over again and maybe market them a little bit differently or look at segments that you know you haven't leaned into previously rather than redefining what those needs are and really digging into how to address them and and not always be directed by what people are asking for that might be more traditional but what their needs really are and how to redefine uh, what you're what you're positioning in front of them. I agree with that. I think that's a great thing about you know fintech companies, including the ones on this show today, is that it, you could really take a specific pain point for a specific segment and deliver you know a 10x better solution than sort of a broad based approach with, that a traditional institution offers. Yeah, to Una's point, you know I think the market's massive and it's uh, you know we we've traditionally focused on more of the lower to middle income segment, uh, just because it's aligned with kind of our roots of where we started on the W2 side. And for us, like that, you know, key pain point we're solving is just that the, the faster access to pay, right, gives them greater financial peace of mind. But that might look totally different, as Una mentioned, for someone sort of moderate to higher income. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if yes, exactly to Una's point, you, you will each catering over a specific problem. I have to ask you a question, which I should have asked earlier. For our international listeners, what is a W-2? Yes, uh, a W-2 employee is uh, employed, you know, by a company that they'll have to, it's traditionally nine to five and, you know, taxes are filed at the time of uh, payment. In the US, you're identified by your tax code. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> Not that it's that simple, though, either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every time anybody starts talking about American taxes to me, I come out in a cold sweat yeah. and decide that I couldn't possibly ever, ever live there. Um, so I think, I think, yeah, I think that maybe the point we're making here is, and you know, maybe to come back to what you're saying, Craig, because kind of what, what gig wage does is actually perhaps you're helping would you say you're helping employers and employees rather than like it, it, you're actually almost providing a benefit? 
Does that make sense? Is that or is that unfair? Yeah, no. Gig wage is a definitely. We we have very B two B roots, right? We're at, we're the actual payroll company. We don't plug into other payroll companies or HR companies. We are the actual payroll company for the business and the employer. But by default, because of the nature of the types of work we focus on, we also have this B two C component where you know the workers are a, they're what we call. Uh, an important but unique part of your workforce, right? And so we provide the payroll uh, services that these businesses need to pay people when they want, how they want, where they want. And uh, inevitably, when you implement gig wage, it becomes a recruiting and retention tool for great contractor talent, for sure. But as an extension of that, we also are the, you know, the distribution and the payments, et cetera. Uh, the workers get a gig wage account that they can take with them from job to job and task to task. They get visibility across multiple employers, et cetera. And so we have a very comprehensive B2B2C approach, which really speaks to my vision and philosophy that this is a systemic issue that needs a comprehensive solution. With that being said, though, if the comprehensive solution is infrastructure, now you, you, you talked about traditional workers and, you know, can you, you know, one company do it all or can you focus in on a segment? Well, financial service, no matter how large the financial service companies are, they focus on a segment even with traditional workers, right? Like some people focus on, you know, W-2, which is the new thing your international li- listeners have learned today. There's all types. There's hourly W-2s. There's W-2s that get paid at different frequencies. They do different types of work. They have different types of benefits needs. And employers have catered to that. And the financial services companies have catered to the employers that cater to that type of traditional work. Really, the gig economy is no different. It's just much more fast, flexible, and robust. But you'll see a myriad of companies continue to get built that speak to different segments. For us, what we believe is there should be some core infrastructure in place, very much like what you've had for traditional work over the last hundred years. And so lots of opportunity. Um, you'll see niche companies become very big companies. Uh, you'll see academia start to get involved. We're doing work across all fronts, right? Legislative, uh, academia, we're, you know, non-for-profits. Uh, you, you know, um, Atif just talked about the report they did with Marketa, which I thought was a wonderful report. We're doing some stuff with a non-for-profit called Commonwealth. And so it's going to take all of the pillars of economic kind of infrastructure to really come together and service all of the different types of companies and workers in this market. All right. Well, that's, I think, a great point for us to take a quick break, but we'll be back very shortly. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Visa's FinTech Fast Track program is a quick and easy way to connect to the Visa network and issue payment credentials. Whether you're an up-and-coming neobank, modernizing B2B payments, or launching a new crypto solution, amazing things can happen when your innovation is combined with the power of one of the world's largest payment networks. Learn more about the possibilities at partner.visa.com. With a global consumer panel of 15 million registered members, over 11 years of historic single-source data, and proprietary technology that connects data and simplifies the research process, YouGov is home to the largest collection of constant, entirely permissioned consumer opinion and rich behavioral intelligence in the world. To learn more, visit business.yougov.com. Right, welcome back. So now we're going to continue this conversation by looking at one of the big reasons why the gig economy has exploded in the last year. That would be the pandemic. 
We saw more and more people embarking on gig work uh, for reasons ranging from increased flexibility, uh, people who lost their job, people who just fancied uh, a side hustle and now is the time to do it. Um, But what has this meant for financial services aimed at gig workers? So essentially what we're talking about in this section is the drivers behind the need for for more financial services and perhaps the drivers for for more financial services providers coming to market in the last 18 months to, to serve this group. So, I mean, has anybody sort of seen, given, you know, your own customers, um, do, you, do you think you've seen more people move from, you know, doing gig work on the side to doing gig work as their, their main source of income? Has, that, has there been an increase, basically, in the number of people who are doing gig work full time and therefore their financial needs are greater? Because when you're just doing it on the side, you can sort of handle the odd receipt or the odd, you know, payment here and there. But if it becomes your full time job, it becomes there's a much greater imperative, I suppose, for you to have service services that enable you to manage your income more effectively. Um, do you, I don't know, I, I don't know, you know, you, you guys have your customer bases, perhaps you can draw from that. Do you think that that has happened? Yeah, so just just to take a step back, some things that I thought were interesting during the pandemic, just to note, is that the average annual income in the US amongst freelancers is now about $63,000 a year. And that actually remained stable through the pandemic which I think is fascinating when you think about it. And it, it indicates that being a freelancer or a gig worker was actually the most stable, in quotes, job that you could have during this period. And we certainly found that, at least in our kind of middle class segment of the freelance population, in that they had the panic that I think was very natural in the market and amongst uh, all freelancers and workers initially, and then quickly iterated into new jobs or marketing to different clients and everything. And I think that's reflective of what I like to call more of the flexible workforce, right? And I think is more indicative than any industry or income level of folks that are really leaning into this space full time is that they're very flexibly minded, right? and kind of applying multiple income sources to aggregate into a, a singular and growing uh, level of, of income. Atif, did you want to comment on that? Yeah, I think from our perspective, again, kind of where we focus traditionally around the lower to moderate income, um, we found that people, you know, during the pandemic were turning to gig work, which was mainly motivated by limited cash flow. You know, when we surveyed um, workers on our platform, 80% had less than $500 saved for an emergency. And so especially with hours being so unpredictable last year from traditional employers, many really just turned to gig work and uh, contract work to boost their earnings. But I thought one of the surprising things, though, that we found in the data was that for the workers that were turning to gig opportunities, they mainly rely just on one to two platforms uh, to pick up work um, while retaining, you know, their full-time employment or their W-2 jobs. But yeah, we could see probably that shift as, you know, workers turn to more gig work full-time. Yeah. For us, we saw really just an acceleration of all the trends that were happening pre-pandemic. Like, you know, people are more and more going from this kind of concept of need and have to work uh, a gig job or, you know, using it to supplement income to under, you know, as millennials become the largest generation in the workforce, Gen Z enters the workforce, people are choosing to work in this flexible manner. And as the platforms become more and more robust, as benefits become more and more available, however you define benefits, uh, we were already seeing this trend. We think the pandemic probably accelerated it a good five to seven years, though, um, in that, you know, 
it's it's funny, right? People have positive and negative connotations around the gig economy. But the thing I always say is, whatever the reason is you're in the gig economy, the cool thing about it is it's there for you, right? Like this concept that I can push a button whether I want to or not, right? Rather, I'd rather be doing something else or not and make money. And that's a very, very powerful thing. And I think the pandemic really showed that from your home, from your phone, from your computer, the ability to leverage technology and make money and like be up and running that day, get paid that day. Those things, I think, became just tremendously highlighted throughout uh, COVID. And I think that that trend is only going to continue. And it was more of an acceleration than something new. And then to your point about transportation specifically, which is our top industry at gig wage, you know, these workers that are, are driving, we, we do everything from, you know, food delivery to non-emergency medical delivery, auto parts delivery. We pay all kind of people to deliver all kind of people deliver actual deliver cars and auctions. And we see all kind of stuff like we're seeing a, a myriad of benefits around that. A lot of insurance products around the transportation and vehicle industry and how do people pay for those and get those. And so the transportation industry has been impacted tremendously. Unemployment rates were super high during the pandemic. And so again, gig economy was really just accelerated during the pandemic. Do we think then that the, the trend is is here to stay? I mean, Craig, I think you, you pretty emphatically suggested that you think it is here to stay, that more people are going to choose to work this way. My investors hope that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Maybe it's an unfair question if your investors are listening. I mean, Artif, I was going to come back to you. And cause, cause, cause Counting you'd, on it. Yeah, because you'd suggested that you had your, you know, one of the, the initial drivers you shortly is people needing more money. Do you think that they're going to they're gonna stay doing what they're doing now? Do you think they're going to try and go back and look for, for more classical, shall we say, or or, or traditional kind of job working patterns? Yeah, I think that, you know, kind of reiterate Craig's point, like people enjoy the flexibility, right, of gig work and the flexibility to, to it's really powerful to, you know, again, pick up a job that day and on your own hours and your own terms and get paid. And we definitely have seen that shift in consumer demand, right, on the worker side as something that I think is only going to continue to grow. I think to layer onto both of Craig and Atif's points, like I think that what we've seen is people love the flexibility. They're afraid of the lack of structure, right? It's easy to walk into a nine to five job, have your first week be consumed by filling out paperwork, have HR and finance telling you, you know, this is what you need to fill out. These are the numbers you need to put in here. Here's your business card, whatever the case is. And all of us in our own ways are trying to fill in and create that structure, right? And, and pull in the right players to, to help with that so that it is truly up to people's choice and there is no kind of fear of the unknown hurdle. Um, what I think is really interesting about this point in time and is not talked about as much is that even in traditional working environments, I think Julia Pimsler wrote about this previously, is that you had people changing their jobs an average of 17 times in their career, right? But in traditional job settings and previous schemas, that was a different title, or you maybe change jobs in a horizontal way or up-leveled in some sort of way. But there was a bit more of a structured path even. And what you're finding with flexible work and the, the significant part of the workforce now is that people are discovering that they can make much more dramatic shifts in their workforce. And I think that is, you know, thanks to technology. I think it's thanks to different kinds of learning platforms, business coaching, what have you. 
And people are really diving into exploring what it is that they're curious about, what they're good at, um, you know, where there's the potential for monetization. And, you know, we're finding that most of our account holders are really, you know, pulling from multiple sources of income, typically an average of three, and they're dabbling. And they're dabbling really actively to discover what they're curious about what they're good at and and what they can charge for and i think that's really exciting and it's a then makes sense if you think about the timeline that somebody would shift in terms of what they're doing 17 times on average but the shifts are now just that much more dramatic today yeah and i'd like to make a point and really ask the question to the panel uh, myself is we're seeing indirectly because again we're only focused on gig workers freelancers contractors but we are seeing an impact of this kind of new way of working start to bleed into traditional work, right? And I think the other panelists may have more insight into this than we do, but we're seeing traditional workers want to get paid faster, on demand, wanting that flexibility. And I'm, I'll be curious if you guys are you know, seeing that in your customer base as well. Again, it's not a part of our customer base per se, but tangentially we see it you know, or adjacently tied to the workforce that we support. Are you guys seeing that same trend? Definitely. I think, you know, there are companies that are looking to sort of a contingent workforce, uh, you know, a contractor workforce for a segment of their workforce, be it, you know, around logistics, um, you know, around anything, as you've seen too, mentioned, uh, you know, you saw increase in sort of the transportation industry. So we're seeing a lot of staffing going on there. So I, yeah, I definitely think it's going to be part of the strategy for companies going forward of like how they can kind of supplement their own labor force with kind of this flex workforce that they can tap into as needed. Or even to keep their current employees, because I think there's, you know, there's demand from people who have kept their, let's say, nine to five jobs, although has anybody ever worked nine to five in their life, if it's eight to six, if you're lucky. But, you know, there is demand from people who have kept those jobs, who are still working those jobs, but have gone, you know what, I really like being at home five days, uh, you know, four days a week, or I really like being able to start at 10, you know, and drop my kids off at school and then, you know, finish later. And I wonder if perhaps what we'll see is employers more traditional inverted commas employers having to implement more flexible working to keep the staff they've got. And then that will mean that they have to think about, okay, so how are we going to pay these people? How are we going to keep track of it? And I wonder if that's yet another driver for this industry. Um, But I just want to kind of pick up on that perhaps and say, you know, maybe maybe one of the final questions before before we close out is, do do you see any of the big players in this space, whether that's financial services players, you know, for you, whether that's, you know, some of the traditional benefits or HR platforms for you, Craig, do you see them being able to cater to these, these groups? Or do you think it's just not, there's just not, they're not going to be able to do it because they're so big, they're so lumbering, they don't think the right way, they've got the wrong culture, the wrong technology, you know, all of these things that are chucked around. Do you think we're going to see them be able to compete? Or do you think that it's time for the new guard? Oh, no, they're going to compete. But all those things you said are true, right? Like they're too slow. They don't think about it the right way. They've got too much kind of legacy technology built in. They've got, you know, shareholder value built up on the last hundred years that the way people work. With that being said, though, they have massive balance sheets. And what we notoriously hear is, and because we we have a, a very collaborative approach to the market. Like if you list out all of my competitors, I will show you a path to partner (laughs) like 100%. And so we're talking to a lot of these incumbents and they have, it's, this is not new and this, it won't be like some aha moment, but it's like, Hey, listen, are we going to build it? Are we going to buy it? Or are we going to partner? 
And they know they've got to solve it one way or the other, and they've got the balance sheets to to take a stab at it. And so some people will try to build it. They'll probably fail horribly. Uh, some people will buy it. And depending on how good they are with M&A and, and integrations, they could succeed. And then I think you're going to see over the next five years a lot of partnering so people can get a feel for this. And the last thing I'd say about it, the biggest of the big, the people that have the most market coverage, they're the ones that are excited about it because they're feeling the impact the most, right? And so all of the really, really big insurance companies, payroll companies, you know, uh, all of these, you know, investment banking companies, they are starting to feel it. They've got enough incoming data to say, oh, this is a wave, this is a thing. And so there's massive opportunity there. It's just a matter of do they build by a partner? Yeah, they, they they have the impetus. They can they can see it coming. They're not they're not yep. they're not ostriching it as we'd say, head in the sand. I mean, uh, you know, Artif, you know, but before we before we close out, what are your thoughts on on the future? Then whether the question is around, you know, whether you're gonna, you know, whether whether the, the big guys are gonna come in and play alongside this, or whether you know the new market's gonna just continue to grow. We've talked about so many different opportunities. I imagine you know both of you have different thoughts and ideas, and perhaps even things in progress about where your own companies might go next. But you know, what what is your what is your thought on the future? Future of this space is is it just going to continue to grow? Well, I, I'm happy to jump in. That I think that you know, very aligned with what Craig just said. You know, it's the the incumbents are being pulled into this conversation by younger, more nimble players, and certainly uh, we we see that ourselves. Uh, we have investors from the banking space, right, that that believe in what we're doing and know that we'll be able to operate and, and test more more quickly than they than they could ever. And then certainly, I think that what you're seeing is overall, the market is being pulled in a direction currently in in terms of reassessing fees that are levied on consumers and therefore freelancers. And I think that trend will just continue. We're really active at Lancet in terms of redefining the products and the tools that are available to freelancers. And I think the more that our company and companies that that are coming up behind us in all of that uh, push those different kinds of tools. You know, the larger banks will feel that much more confident, frankly, to redesign their tools and come up as well. I think the the talent, the point about balance sheet is well taken, um, and certainly that's why you need to be very active and nimble in redesigning products and not just competing on traditional products that are existing out there as well. And Artif, I'll give you the final word on that. Sure. Uh, similar take, you know, of course, it's a big market opportunity and, you know, traditional financial institutions will play in this. And in fact, you know, you've already seen financial institutions start incorporating some features that other fintech companies have, you know, done on sort of the neobank side, be it the two-day early paycheck, you know, reducing overdraft fees, ATM fees. So they're feeling the pressure, right? Um, and I think it's our job to, yeah, keep delivering solutions that are tailored to consumers. Uh, ultimately, it's a net benefit for consumers, right? The more options they have, more people pushing to do what's right for the consumer. Yeah, it's important. Absolutely. Well, on that note, I am going to close this conversation out, but it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, where can people find out more about you and your companies, ask you any questions that they may have off the back of today? Craig, we'll start with you. Yep. From a company perspective, all social is at GigWage. And then our website is gigwage.com, G-I-G-W-A-G-E.com. And then for me, um, at Craig J. Lewis, pretty much everywhere except for Twitter. Couldn't get that handle. So it's at Craig Jamal Lewis. But uh, 
Pretty, pretty. Uh, I, I like the joke. Pretty Googleable. <laughs> Brilliant. Always useful. Um, Atif, how about you? Yeah, you can find us on social at Twitter at Branch. Otherwise, our website is uh, branchapp.com. And Una, how about you? So you can find us uh, on the web at www.lance.app. And then myself on Twitter at O-Rokita, R-O-K-Y-T-A. And uh, we're very searchable elsewhere and and, uh, thrilled to be a part of this today. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much again to all of you. Uh, If anybody wants to find me on social media, they can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, do subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make it better and it does help others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or you can email podcast11fs.com. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. 